Where's Wally? Known in the United States and Canada as Where's Waldo, is a series of children's books created by British illustrator Martin Hanford. Uh, the books consist of a series of detailed double-page spread illustration depicting dozens or more people doing a variety of amusing things, and the reader is challenged to find a character named Wally hidden in the group. Now, Wally wears a distinctive red and white striped shirt. He has a bobble hat, glasses that make him easy to recognize, but the illustration is filled with red herrings, red and white colors there to uh, distract your eye and make it more difficult to find him. 1986, Hanford was asked by his art director, uh, Walter uh, Walker Books, to uh, draw this, this character in crowds as a focal point. And after much thinking, he came up with this idea of Wally and made him a world traveler, etc., etc. You're probably familiar with, with the thing. It's become a, a comic strip. It's become a TV show. But we're not really talking about that. Another creative Vandalia title. The question we are really asking today is, if I, when I get to heaven, am I going to be saying, where's Waldo or Wally or... Bill or George or anything but Sue? <laughs> We're going to talk about No Tears in Heaven, part one. We're going to prove with the Scripture that we will identify and know each other in the hereafter. And then we're going to go back to the No Tears category and finish up. Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Over in the next chapter, chapter 22, let's look at the first five verses there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. My favorite line, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven and earth, gone. The sea, gone. No tears. No death. No mourning and sorrow. No crying anymore. No pain. Nothing accursed will be there. No night. Of all of the things on that list, probably that last one is the easiest one for us to get our heads around. Because at least the, the understanding that we have right now during the 24-hour cycle of time for each day, there's a period of light that we call day and there's a period of darkness that we call night. And so we can envision a, a, a situation where there isn't any dark period called night. We know what daytime looks like and so we can, we can envision this in our minds. Probably the easiest thing to picture that's on this list. Second, maybe, on the list would be death. Because we have, if there is such a thing as genetic memory, we, we were made to be eternal beings. It wasn't God's intention that death come on the scene there in the Garden of Eden. But because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, it did. But there is something in us, like C.S. Lewis talked about, you pull the fish up out of the water, and what does he want to do? He wants to get back in the water. And there's something there. We know this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't where I want to be. So there's somewhat of a memory there. As for the rest of the things on that list. Well, in truth, we are incapable of conceptualizing those ideas. At least not accurately. Because right now, in our current state of existence, we, we carry with us this, this mental filter called life. And life is full of pain and suffering, crying and tears. So any attempt to grasp an idea such as no tears, no sorrow, no crying, no pain is tainted by these realities. And even if we manage to hold that mental concept of no tears for a moment, our knowledge base, our life experience encroaches very quickly upon that and the concept is called into question and then the weak grasp that we had on it dissipates probably in much less time. Is it gone than it took to actually form the idea in our minds? Now, to help us understand and illustrate what I'm talking about, consider also Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the ESV translation. Or 2 Corinthians 5 and 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight.
go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The three greatest spiritual virtues, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. Why is that? Faith and hope, you see, are actually encompassed by love, which believes all things and hopes all things. 1 Corinthians 13 and 7. And faith and hope will have no more purpose in heaven. Where everything will be known and everything good will be possessed, therefore they are not equal to love. Someday they will pass away and be no more. Now, getting our minds around the idea of there not being any faith or any hope. I mean, just consider your existence right now as you endeavor to live for Christ and eliminate faith from that picture. You can't do it. That is the center most thing about your whole existence, your faith. And we're hoping for heaven. Remove that hope. What do we have? So it's nigh on to impossible for us to really grasp that. But getting our, our minds around this idea as much as we are able to is really no different than getting our minds around as much as we are able to the idea, the concept of no tears in heaven. And we're going to come back to no tears. Let's do some proving with the Scripture whether or not we will know each other in heaven. <coughs> of Abraham and his death, the record says, he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. Genesis 25 and 8. Now, Abraham's ancestors lived and died in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham's father, Terran, brought his, his family out of that area and settled for a time in Haran. And that's where Terah died. I said Terran. Terah, his father, died there. Now, by the time Abraham dies, he's hundreds of miles from that place and much farther from Ur of the Chaldees. So, this cannot refer to the interment of his body. It must mean something else. The same expression is used of Moses in 32.50 of Deuteronomy. And what do we know about the burial of Moses? Does anybody know where that is? That place. 
far from the tombs of his fathers, hidden. The same expression is used of Jacob quite some time before he was buried in the cave of Machpelah, which we read about in uh, Genesis 49.33 and 50.13. So there seems to be a distinction here. Being gathered to one's people is distinguished from being buried. So it must mean something else. It must mean a reuniting of the spirits of the faithful ancestors. And that place would be Sheol, according to the Hebrews, or from the Greek, Hades, or we might call it the waiting place from that perspective. When Jacob believed that Joseph had been devoured, he declared, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning in Genesis 37, 35. Obviously, he was not anticipating joining Joseph in a common grave because as far as Jacob knew right then, Joseph's body had been ravaged and torn to bits by some wild animal and pieces of him were probably in the belly of that wild animal. So it cannot mean that. He expected to be reunited with his son in Sheol. And therefore, recognition is implied here in this text. What good would it do to join him there if neither of them knew it? Say, do I know you? I don't think so. Do I know you? Centuries later, when David, after his sin with Bathsheba, which resulted in the conception of that son, that child, and the child was born, and the child was dying, and David had spent all that time praying and fasting, and then he got word he figured out what they were whispering about and he figured out that the baby had died. He said, he's, he's dead, isn't he? Yes. And he got up, cleaned himself, and he went to worship. And they were all shocked. They were afraid to tell him in the first place because of how distraught he had been all those days. So they said, well, you were in such a state and we didn't want to tell you. We didn't know what you might do. And he said, well... Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. 2 Samuel 12, 23. This indicates a belief that David would know his son in a future state. Isaiah pictures the king of Babylon as descending into Sheol, where he is greeted by his former earthly associates. How art thou fallen from heaven, O day star, or Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nation? 14 and 12 of Isaiah. Now symbolically, of course, this is talking about Satan, but it speaks to a view that indicates consciousness. Exchange of thoughts and vivid recollection of the past in the hereafter. Jesus promised, Many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Now, we are the recipients of this promise. Will the recipients, us, of this promise realize its fulfillment? What good will it do for us to sit down with the patriarchs if we don't know them? 
And if we do know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom we've never met on earth, does it not follow that those men, grandfather, father, and son, also know each other there? Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus on the mount. What do they talk about? Well, if you look at Luke's account in 931, they were talking about his departure, his exodus. They were talking about what was going to happen very soon and, and talking about after that, I'm sure. Now, Moses and Elijah had been dead for a long time. And Peter certainly had never met them. But he knew them. Now, it says that Jesus was transfigured with them. There was a, a change of form. They were in a different form, but He knew them. He knew them. In other words, He didn't have to do like I did with a couple of ladies that sat by me and I hadn't seen in a long time, just today, and catch up with some of the facial recognition and all of that, having not seen each other for some time. But none of that was required. Something was there, though. They could recognize each other. Matthew 25, 31 and forward. Revelation 6, 9 and 10 indicate memory or the, the consciousness of earthly events and people after death. We have the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19 through 31. And again, that's a, a picture of the waiting place. But we have some of these things said about both of these places. The rich man recognized Abraham and Lazarus and was not and and was asked to remember verse 25. He recalled his unprepared brothers back home on earth. Remember indicates the survival of personality. If we could not remember, heaven and hell would not have their intended significance for those who experience them. Paul says that one of his joys in the end will be seeing the fruits of his earthly labors and being with those that he had led to Christ. He said this to the brethren at Thessalonica, First uh, Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. He said it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.14. So, here's the question. I forgot to put that one up there. Answering the question. Will I know and recognize individuals in heaven that I have known and loved here on earth? Well, how do you know them now? How do you know them now? If you were suddenly struck blind, would you cease to know them? As your bodies age and become infirmed, does that change the them that you know or the you that they know? If you're in your bedroom at night, or if you're down at the table in the early hours of the morning, 
Can you tell who it is that's coming down the stairs by their footfalls, the sounds that they make, by their by their movements? If someone writes something and they are posing as someone else, even if they type it, now if they wrote it, you might be able to recognize their, their handwriting, but they put words on a page, but they're posing as someone else. They're trying to practice some deception on you. If you pay attention to the way they use their language, the words that they select in their vocabulary, can you identify who it is that really wrote this? First time I, uh, well, not the first time, because I got some advice uh, from one of my elders when I was starting out uh, about writing reports, which I hate to do still to this day. And you can tell, I'm sure, because you don't see them very often. But Paul McKenzie, one of the elders at Long Beach, gave me some uh, some tips, and the greatest tip he gave me was that I should uh, let my wife do some... Uh, editing for me. And then the next report came and and uh, my father happened to be visiting Long Beach and, and Paul leaned over to my dad and my dad was reading my report that had been delivered to Long Beach and he said, he writes a good report, doesn't she? <laughs> you can pick up on things. You know this. Whether you... you Pay attention or, or consciously. It, it's there. Subconsciously, it is there. How about if they call you on the phone and they disguise their voice trying to trick you? Again, if you listen long enough to their words, won't you figure them out? And then if they laugh, oh, then it's a giveaway. Each of us has a presence a personality, a being that is unique and knowing each other is not dependent on the physical. Yes, that plays a great role in everything, but when we think about it, there is a lot more going on than just that. So when the physical is gone, all the rest remains. And so by these indicators and those scriptures that we referenced, the question is, will I know and recognize individuals in heaven that I have known and loved here on earth? And I believe we can answer that question, yes. No tears in heaven, part two. If we will recognize each other on the judgment day and in heaven, assuming that we ourselves get there, how will we not be sad when we see people whom we love being turned away at the judgment into eternal damnation? How could it be possible for us not to be sad about that? Whenever we talk about this, this is the most commonly brought up question. If we know each other there and some of our loved ones are not there, 
knowing that fact would mar the bliss of heaven. This is the assumption. On the other hand, however, if we are unable to recognize any of our loved ones there, we must be uncertain whether any of them are there. Therefore, we would worry about all of them, even the ones who were there. If our peace of mind is the issue, would it not be better for some of our loved ones to be there and know them than for all of them to be there and not know them? But again, emotionally, we are not able to fathom everything there is to be grasped about this subject. But the objection that is cited, the, the but and the if here, really is probably simply based on an erroneous concept about the attitudes that we will have in the next world. Everything imperfect is going to be gone, including our imperfect conceptions, perspectives on things. All of that is going to be gone. And surely we'll be able to fully acquiesce when we are overwhelmed with the righteous judgment of God. Surely we will be able to see that those who are not in heaven should not be there. First Timothy chapter 1 verse 11. First Timothy 1 verse 11. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Go to the sixth chapter. Verse 15. Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's our God. How presumptuous are we if we impose our weak and feeble ideas about love? As if to say that our love is greater than God's love for mankind or for the people that we love. How presumptuous is that idea? And yet God, with His love that makes ours pale in contrast, He is blessed and He is happy. Even though He knows that many are to be eternally lost. So this is what we need to try to get into our perspective. And I'm not going to try to pretend that that's an easy thing to do. But we need to trust our God and look to what He tells us about this and, and let those words speak. And if our words are cluttering up the living room and we can't walk through to see His words over there, we'll get it out of the way. Just have what you need 
And be confident that all of our heartaches will be fully remedied and that God shall wipe away every tear. Revelation 7, 17, Revelation 21 and 4. Two times that that is mentioned in that book. Consider what we have said. If our earthly joys sometimes are diminished by the realities of our tears, making it impossible at times to keep or have joy because the sorrow cancels out the joy. Because in reality, those two, joy and sorrow, cannot coexist in the same moment. We won't talk about tears of joy or tears of happiness because how that ends tells us what's really going on there. Or bittersweet, it ends with the sweet. So that's really a form of sweet. Or it's a form of joy. So that doesn't really help us there. But is it not reasonable to consider that the reality of joy in heaven and that joy being eternal, meaning in every moment, will cancel out or overwhelm any sorrow leaving no space in heaven in which sorrow can exist. In conclusion, Revelation chapter 20. The question we need to be asking is, is my name written there? Revelation 20, starting at verse 11, down through the end of the chapter. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You can't get there for them, but I hope you will get there. Is your name written there? That's what we all need to be thinking about. Thank you.